Good to be with you this morning. Bob's comment just now reminded me of a verse in Hebrews. Turn to chapter 11, look at verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. There are two questions, I think, that are asked and answered in that verse. The first question is, of what does Bible faith consist? And the second question is, what are the consequences of Bible faith? And the writer gives three answers to each question. Of what does Bible faith consist? There is an intellectual component, an emotional component, and a volitional component. And that's what men are. Men have intellect, they have emotions, and they have willpower. They have volition. And so the text says that God warned Noah. Somehow or other, God appealed to Noah's ability to understand, to think, to reason of things not seen as yet. Noah became convinced of things not seen as yet. He was certain that a flood was coming. And so then his emotions kicked in. He moved with fear. Now, that's what emotions do. Take the E off of emotion, and you've got motion. Emotions is what gets us in motion. And the fear that Noah had was not a craving, cowardly fear. It was the fear of love. Every love relationship has an element of fear in it. When you love someone, you're afraid of saying anything or doing anything that would upset them. And so Noah moved with fear, and then he prepared an ark. He built an ark. And that's what Bible faith is, and that's the kind of faith we're talking about in these studies, a faith that appeals to our understanding, that makes sense to us, that rings true. And because of that, our heart is stirred by what our head holds. And because of that, we get moving. We do something. We, we do what God asks of us. And so last night, we talked about the documents, and I said last night that we don't begin with the assumption that the Bible is inspired. We begin by examining the claims of the Gospels that they are primary source documents. Throughout the Gospels are scattered statements that make implicit claim to the fact that they are accurate history. Turn to Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Luke does something here in the very first verse uh, of chapter 3 that you just don't do if you're making up a story. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturean of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, uh, Tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being high priest. If you're making up a story... If you're trying to perpetrate a fraud, you don't do what Luke just did. You don't give specifics. You don't name names. You don't give locations. You don't make connections between people and places because all of that can be checked out. When you're engaging in fraud, a scam of some sort, you try to be as generic as possible. Make it hard for somebody to pin you down. But here Luke gives names, he gives places, and don't think for a minute that the skeptics haven't gone over these verses in Luke with a fine-tooth comb. They've 
They've tried to, to disprove his statements, his historical statements that, that he makes in the book. Um, in, in the book of Acts, uh, William Ramsey, uh, some of you I, I know know this, but William Ramsey started out investigating uh, the book of Acts, the places, the, the, the things Luke talks about there, because he was an unbeliever, and he was going to prove that you can't trust Luke. By the time he got to Acts chapter 14, he became completely convinced that Luke was as accurate an historian as there exists from antiquity. And so we begin with the, uh, the assumption that the Gospels are ancient documents that claim to be reliable history. We do not begin with the assumption that they are inspired. But I believe they're inspired. Well, why do I believe they're inspired? Because what we're going to talk about in this study this morning proves that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus tells me they're inspired. And if Jesus is the Son of God, I'm going to believe what the Son of God has to say. And so the Gospels, as history, prove Christ to be the Son of God, and then the Son of God puts inspiration into the documents, and that's why I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, because Jesus is the Son of God, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God because the Bible's inspired. And I hope you understand the distinction I'm making there. But this morning, I want to talk about what I consider the crucial evidence in these historical documents. We're going to look at four things, then we're going to finish up by talking about the witnesses. Did you know that we know more about the details involved in the death of Jesus than we know about the death of any other individual from antiquity. We know more about how Christ died than about how Julius Caesar died, or about how uh, Xerxes died, or uh, Augustus, or any other figure from antiquity. And from the details, there are four considerations I want us to look at this morning, because each of these are important to establishing the nature of Jesus Christ. The first of these is that he died. That's the first fact I want us to look at. Jesus died. He died on a Roman cross. The Romans did not invent crucifixion. They adapted it from the Persians. The Persians would take a pole stick it in the ground, sharpen the end of it, and then impale their victim on that sharpened stake. Well, that was too quick a death for the Romans, so they refined it. They, uh, they made crucifixion just uh, boards, stakes, a tree on which men were nailed or tied and left to die. Everything about crucifixion was meant to prolong death. If you looked up the words cruel and unusual punishment in the dictionary, you'd find a picture of a cross. Roman citizens were exempted from crucifixion because it was such a terrible death. Nero couldn't even stand to see somebody crucified because the horrors were so bad. It was a, it was a horror show that was a warning to the populace, to the rabble, you better stay in line, or this is what's going to happen to you. Roman citizens were entitled to a speedy death. They had their heads chopped off. Tradition says that's how Paul died. He was a Roman citizen. Not only was 
Crucifixion meant to prolong the agony of dying, stretching it out as long as possible. But there were stigmas attached to crucifixion, primarily from the standpoint of the Jews. To be crucified as a Roman meant you were repudiated by men. You were at the bottom. But to be crucified from a Jewish perspective meant you were repudiated by God because the law pronounced a curse on any man hung on a tree. And yet this is the death that God chose for his son. He not only, Christ not only died, he died a shameful death. And the evidence is impeccable telling us that he died. In the Gospels, we read that the Jews came to the uh, Romans and asked that the three victims who had been crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem, that something be done to speed up their death because the Sabbath was coming on. They wanted time to take the bodies down to do some tidying up. And so the Romans broke the legs of the two thieves on either side of Jesus. You know, death often on a cross took anywhere from a day and a half to three days to accomplish. Sometimes longer, sometimes less. If the wild animals got to you, you might not last that long. But if you were left alone, you were alone, you were hanging there on the cross, and uh, eventually you got to where you couldn't breathe because you slumped on a cross. And in order to breathe, you would have to pull yourself up to expand your lungs to take in air, and victims would use their legs to push up to breathe. And so to speed up suffocation, death by suffocation, the Romans would break the leg bones of the victims. They could no longer use their legs to push up, and they would just hang there exhausted, and they would suffocate to death. And so the Romans broke the legs of the the thieves who had been crucified on either side of Christ. But when they came to Christ, they saw that that was redundant. He was already dead. And listen, Roman crucifixion teams knew when a man was dead or not. They had probably killed dozens, if not hundreds, of victims by crucifixion. Uh, when uh, Spartacus led his slave revolt a couple hundred years before Christ, and the Romans finally put that down, they lined the roads leading into Rome for miles with the bodies of those slaves all put to death by crucifixion. When the Romans took Jerusalem in 70 A.D., they ran out of wood to crucify victims. They had crucified so many Jews. The Romans knew what they were doing when they crucified somebody. And you can bet that those legionnaires who had been sent out on that detail that day to crucify those men could tell if a man was dead or not. But even with that, there was one final blow they struck when that legionnaire inserted his spear into the side of Christ and pulled it out, and John said, and it must be important because he says, I saw it in John 19. I want you to know, I saw what I'm telling you. He saw blood and water pour out. And I tell you, I, I'm just not sure I've gotten hold of the significance of that. I think somehow or other that flow of blood and water was empirical proof that Jesus was dead, but exactly what that proof consisted of, I'm not sure I know. Uh, the, the exit of the fluid from the body of Christ would have been due to gravity, not to hydraulic pressure. 
I mean, when a man dies, any blood coming out of his body comes out differently than when he has a heart pumping and the fluids coming out. So what John saw was due to the flow of gravity. And maybe something could have been distinguished from that. Maybe the fact that the blood came out first and then the water came out indicated that the blood and serum had already started to separate into its constituent elements as happens at the time of death. I've, I've talked to doctors about this, and, and I haven't really gotten a definitive answer from any of them, but when a person dies, the, uh, the fluids in the body begin to break down. Uh, they don't hold together any longer, and maybe the blood coming out first indicates that the red cells had Christ had died and the blood was breaking down and the red cells had settled and then the serum, the water, lighter than the red cells on top. Maybe that's what's indicated. I don't know. I'm sure, listen, I'm sure that nobody, having, having been scourged like Christ was, they called that the first crucifixion because many victims died under the scourging, and then having been hung on a cross, could in no way have survived having their side ripped out. And that may be the significance, that it wasn't just a little pinprick of a spear. Those Roman spears often had hooks on them so that when they inserted and pulled out, the whole sides ripped out. Now, nobody could survive that. I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever that Jesus was dead. When Pilate heard that he was dead, Pilate couldn't believe it because Christ died in six hours. Remember, it took usually a day and a half to three days for a man to die by crucifixion. And because Pilate couldn't believe it, he had the centurion in charge of the detail go back and double check. And so we have reconfirmation. Lest anybody had made a mistake up to that point, the centurion double checks, comes back and reports that Jesus is dead. The historical record is clear. Christ died. I'll come back to this in just a minute. But Christ died on that cross. Now, having died, he was buried. We know more about the burial of Jesus than we know about any other individual's burial from antiquity. We know that a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, a wealthy man, went to Pilate and asked for the body. And that's when Pilate expressed surprise Mark 15 tells us, and had the report double-checked. And so Pilate turned the body over to Joseph. And the Greek word used in Mark 15 is not soma, the usual Greek word for body, but potoma, corpse. It was a corpse that was handed over to Joseph of Arimathea. We know how the body of Christ was prepared for burial. It was wrapped mummy-style. This whole business of the Shroud of Turin, and you've all seen pictures of that piece of cloth where it's like a placard that was draped over some individual. Uh, I just can't find any evidence that the Jews draped, a, back in the first century, draped a body like that. They wrapped the body up. And as they wrapped the body up, they would put in myrrh and aloes and other spices that wasn't embalming, that was deodorizing. That was meant to cover up the stench of the decaying flesh. And uh, they had about 100 pounds of that stuff. That's a considerable amount. And so they, 
they, they put that in the, the folds of the linen, and they wrapped him up, and then they wrapped his head in a cloth that was detached from the, the rest of the uh, wrappings, linen. And then they put him in a new tomb. Now, I, I tell you, it's curious to me that there just happened to be a tomb within a stone's throw of where Christ was crucified. Wealthy men like Joseph of Arimathea didn't usually build their tombs in the prison courtyard where they hung the prisoner. They picked nice spots, you know, like we pick our cemeteries. They picked nice spots. And here Joseph has got a new tomb just a short distance away from where the crucifixion took place. Some surmise that Joseph prepared that tomb for Jesus. Now, we're not told that in Scripture. I mean, we are told that Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus, she knew what was coming. She knew what was happening. She had been listening to Jesus, not only listening, she believed him. And she anointed him in preparation for his burial. Christ says what she has done is so significant, everywhere the Gospels preach, talk about Mary. Josephus, I'm not sure, or or Joseph, I'm, I'm not sure if he foresaw that. But it's just curious to me that he has this new tomb in which no man had ever been laid, and they put Christ in the tomb, and then they, they left. And it wasn't the friends of Jesus. It was the enemies of Jesus who remembered what he said. That after three days, he would rise from the dead. And so they go to Pilate. And they say, now we want to make sure there's no further monkey business. We want you to take measures to keep that body in the grave. Pilate said, that's your business. You do what you want. I don't think Pilate sent out a Roman detail. I think Pilate was saying to the Jews, you've got all the resources you need. You've got your temple police, Jewish police. You go out and you take care of keeping that body in the tomb. So whether Jewish police or Roman guards were involved is really irrelevant. They, they rolled a boulder to seal the door. The boulders that have survived to this day weigh in the vicinity of five to 600 pounds. The women going back out on Sunday weren't sure how they were going to get that stone rolled back. They were needing someone to roll the stone back. So they, they rolled this massive stone to seal the, the tomb, and then they stretch a cord across it of some sort, and usually they'd put a rope. It's an anti-tampering device, a police yellow tape, uh, crime scene kind of thing and they would put wax on either side, and they'd embed the ends of the rope in that wax so that if anybody messed with the rope at all, the wax would break, and they could tell that somebody's tampered with it. And then they put the guards out in front. And uh, you didn't sleep on the job when you were a guard back then unless you wanted to be put to death. And so they made the tomb as secure as counter uh, measures existed then to secure a tomb. And so on Friday, Christ is buried. But the third crucial fact happens on the third day. The grave was empty on the third day. Gail, you 
Kornfeld, um, back in the 80s, wrote a book called The Historical Jesus. Kornfeld is a Jewish scholar, historian, publisher. Um, and he wrote this wonderful book called The Historical Jesus, a scholarly, scholarly view of the man and his world. And he's not a Christian. Kornfeld's not a Christian. He's someone looking at the evidence from an historical perspective. Here's what he said we know for sure. Number one, that Jesus was a man and not a myth. Number two, that he died on a Roman cross. Number three, that he was buried. Number four, that the tomb was guarded. Number five, three days later, the tomb was empty. He says those things are beyond dispute. The tomb was empty. Now, the question is, who emptied it? Let's go to John chapter 20 and look at John's eyewitness account of getting out to the grave. Uh, we'll start reading about verse, well, let's start with verse 1. John 20, verse 1, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That's the first thing she noticed, the stone's rolled back, she probably thinks, oh good, somebody's been here. I don't have to worry about getting in to finish anointing the body of Jesus. And then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom John loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. She checks. The body is gone. And we do not know where they have laid him. And Peter and John take off running. John outruns Peter. And in verse 4, when they arrive at the tomb, John gets there first, and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. He saw the clothes, but no one in the clothes. Peter, with his impetuosity, verse 6, came following him, went into the tomb, and saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. I mean, I wish we could have seen what Peter saw. What he saw is utterly incompatible with the first explanation formulated for the empty tomb. I'll talk about that in a minute, that the body was stolen. When you are stealing a body, especially a tomb that is guarded, where they're trying to keep you out, you don't take time to unwrap the body. You don't take them out of their clothes and leave the clothes behind and take the time to fold up the shirt, in this case the head napkin, nice and neat and lay it over there by itself. If you're a body snatcher, you're getting in, grabbing the body, and you're getting out as quickly as possible. There used to be a lot of body snatching that went on when doctors needed corpses for medical experimentation. I mean, that was a big problem in England in the 19th century. And they had to pass all kinds of laws threatening people. You got caught, you're in big trouble. So you didn't go about it leisurely. And here you've got these guards out in front of the tomb whose job is to make sure that body stays in the tomb and somebody takes the time to unwrap the body or get it out of the grave clothes and fold the head napkin together by itself. i tell you what my, my idea is, and uh, I, I'll just tell you and you can do with it what you want. My idea is that the grave clothes were still in their windings. I mean, the grave clothes didn't have to be unwound for Jesus to get out of them. 
did they? The doors didn't have to be open later in the day for Jesus to get into a room. My idea is that the body of Christ, when it was resurrected, just somehow or other passed through the grave clothes. And if that's what happened, then the clothes and the linen in which Jesus had been wrapped either fell flat, still in its windings, or because of the hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe blended in, which tend to set up after a while, maybe uh, the grave clothes just sunk in a little. So that what they were looking at was something like a cocoon. Now, that, that's my idea. I'm not sure I can uh, sustain that linguistically here from John 20. But I think there is some evidence for it. But, but regardless, the body is gone. Now, who took the body? If mom makes a batch of chocolate chip cookies and puts them in the cookie jar, tells the kids, don't you touch them, and she comes back and they're all gone, I mean, who took them? How did the body of Jesus disappear? I mean, that's been a question that every unbeliever is going to have to face up to. Christ's body was put in the tomb. Three days later, it's not there. What happened to it? Who took it? I mean, the friends of Jesus didn't take it. Those disciples were afraid the Jews were going to get them next. They were hiding. They were cowering in fear. They were in no mood to take on guards out in front of a tomb and to get the stone rolled back to break the seal, get in and grab the body. That was the last thing on their mind. The friends of Jesus couldn't have taken it. The enemies of Jesus, the Jews, wouldn't have taken it. They wanted the body in the tomb. The Romans dared not take it. But the body is gone. So who took it? That question has got to be answered. Now, there are only two possible explanations for the empty tomb. The body of Christ either disappeared due to natural causes or it disappeared due to supernatural causes. I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 28. Because we're going to talk, starting with verse 11, about the first explanation given for the empty tomb. Matthew 28. Verse 11. Now, while they were going, uh, the women, uh, of verses 9 and 10, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came by night, and stole him away while we slept. It would have taken a whole lot of money for me to say what they wanted these soldiers to say in verse 13. Because the soldiers were admitting to dereliction of duty. They slept at their post. And while they were asleep, the disciples snuck in and stole the body. The priests go on and say, verse uh, 
14. If this come to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. A couple of things there. Number one, they've been pretty successful back on Friday in getting Pilate to do what they wanted, even when Pilate didn't want to do what they wanted. And so they probably think they can do some arm twisting again to get him to go along and protect these soldiers in order to spread this rumor about how the tomb came to be empty. But also the word appease there in the Greek sometimes suggests the idea of a bribe. So they figured they could bribe Pilate and get him to acquiesce to this. And Matthew says they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. That was the standard fallback position when any Jew was challenged about the empty tomb. Oh, the disciples took him. The disciples who were scared to death, who were hiding for fear they'd be caught, and they came by night while guards were asleep. If you're asleep, are you called to testify in court about what happened while you're asleep? I mean, if they're asleep, how do they know what happened? While we were asleep, we know exactly what happened. Well, if you knew what happened, why didn't you get up and do something about it? Now, that's how absurd and ridiculous this claim of the stolen body is. But that was the best that the Jews could come up with. And that was the, uh, the, the Jewish explanation for the empty tomb. Even when Matthew wrote this, most scholars think Matthew wrote maybe around 80, AD, somewhere in there. For the next 50 years, and even beyond, that was the story. There's another popular naturalistic explanation for the empty tomb. I mean, there's all kinds of naturalistic explanations. The apostles hallucinated. Jesus had a twin brother. They thought the gardener was Jesus. You know, the mistaken identity. But the stolen body was the first. The other popular theory, dating from the second century, formulated by the heretic Telsus, is that Christ didn't die on the cross. He passed out. He swooned, the swoon theory. Due to loss of blood, exhaustion, he lost consciousness on the cross. They thought he was dead. Maybe they couldn't pick up a pulse. And they mistakenly buried him. Now, Kornfell has the uh, interesting uh, comment that there was a rabbinic requirement in the first century that relatives revisit the grave of buried relatives on the third day to make sure they were dead because there apparently had been cases of where uh, uh, people not dead had been buried. And so Kelsus came up with the idea that, that Jesus swooned. David Hume, the Scottish skeptic in the 18th century, is the one who just blew this theory to smithereens by pointing out that here's a man who's been crucified. He's been scourged before that. He's been up all night. He's got to be, at, at, if not dead, at the point of death. And they put him in the tomb, wrapped mummy style in those linen garments. And he regains consciousness. And even though he's in a straight jacket, somehow or other he gets out of that straight jacket all on his own. Somehow or other he gets that 500-pound stone rolled back. Somehow or other he gets by those guards without them noticing, and then he appears to his disciples and says, here I am. Can you imagine one of those disciples seeing a man who had gone through all of that 
thinking, boy, I can't wait to get a resurrection body like he's got. I mean, that's just too silly to even give any credence to whatsoever. But the skeptics and the unbelievers have come up with all kinds of theories and ideas that do not fit the facts, that ignore the facts, that make up uh, facts that, that don't exist anywhere except in their head. That's the best the naturalistic explainers can do. Now, there's another explanation for the empty tomb. And that's the fact that Jesus was seen alive. I'm going to talk a little more about this in in, in the sermon here in just a bit. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's look at verses 5 and 8 where Paul cites six instances of Christ being seen. 1 Corinthians 15 starting with, with verse 5. After saying he arose again the third day according to the scriptures... He was seen by Cephas, number one, then by the twelve, number two. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, number three. After that, verse seven, James, and then five, by all the apostles, the second appearance. And then number six, last of all, verse eight, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Do you think Peter would have been taken in by an imposter? He was seen of Peter. Do you think Peter knew Jesus well enough to know whether the one that he thought was Jesus, who presented himself to Peter as Jesus, was in fact Jesus? Well, let's say Peter was duped by some imposter. Were all of the twelve duped? The next classification that Paul gives us? Was doubting Thomas duped? into thinking that someone who was not Jesus was Jesus, 500, many of whom are still alive. That's like talking to the World War II vets. We've still got World War II vets alive. And by the time Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there were some of the 500 who had seen Jesus who were still alive. Or what about James? James is probably here the brother of the Lord, the James of Acts 15, the James of Galatians 2, the James who wrote the epistle of James who in John 7 was not a believer, but became a believer. Do you think he knew his own brother? And then we've got the 12 again. If the first time they were all snookered, were they snookered a second time? And then we've got Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Were they all duped into thinking that someone who was not Jesus was Jesus? Eyewitness testimony confirms the resurrection. Folks, everybody believes in the principle of resurrection. Everybody, believer, unbeliever, doesn't matter. Everybody believes that somehow or other, life came from non-life. That's what the evolutionist believes. That's what the atheist believes, that at some point, everything was not alive. It was dead, if you will. But in the next instant... There's life. I mean, we're not stretching the bounds of credulity as believers to say that Jesus was resurrected. Everybody believes something like that. We've got historical evidence for our belief. They don't. Let's examine the witnesses in the 10 minutes we've got left. 
Simon Greenleaf, who was involved in the origin of the Harvard Law School, wrote a book called Evidence that for many, many decades was one of the standard books in law school about uh, evidence that's admissible in court. He had a wonderful section in there about witnesses, testing the veracity of witnesses. And there are five criteria that he says a court looks at in determining whether somebody you put on the witness stand is believable or not. Let's apply those five tests of Greenleaf to the to the, uh, the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first test is, is this a person of moral integrity? Do they have a reputation for moral integrity? Now, when we apply that to the apostles, how do they grade out? Do you think the men who wrote the book on moral integrity based it on a lie that they had concocted themselves, that they knew to be a lie that they had come up with. You know, the ancients had ways of getting at the truth. And they were very effective ways. Turn to Acts 22. Let me show you how the ancients would get at the truth. Acts 22, Paul is in Jerusalem. A riot's been caused because the Jews thought he has taken a Gentile into the temple. He hadn't, but that's what they thought. And so the police finally come to the rescue. And when they get a chance, they ask Paul what's going on. Paul tells them, and they can't believe that this huge riot has erupted over nothing. And so in Acts 22, let's start reading with verse 22. And they listened to him until this word, that is the Jewish crowd, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fitting that he should live. And as they cried one, uh, and as they cried out, tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander, the police captain, ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. You ever heard of the third degree? Torture? That's a pretty good means of getting the truth out of somebody. Every one of the apostles were tortured. Persecution was a necessary evil. Necessary to demonstrate their integrity. No, the apostles were men of integrity. What about, secondly, in testing a witness, their intellectual capacity for reporting what they claim to have observed? Did the apostles have enough brains to accurately report what they saw? Now, they weren't rocket scientists. But does it take a rocket scientist to determine if somebody came back from the dead? I think you and I could do that. I mean, Matthew's a... Bureaucrat, government official, Peter, James, John, they're businessmen. I think the apostles had plenty of intellectual capability to determine the resurrection. Number three, was there an ulterior motive? Were they bought off? Were they offered a promotion? Was there something going on behind the scenes? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul speaks about ulterior motives. 1 Corinthians 4 Let's start with verse 9, where Paul says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, 
For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. He's being sarcastic. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Even to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed, beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure it. We're defamed, we entreat, we have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things unto this day. Do you see any ulterior motive in that? I mean, Paul says we're at the bottom of the pile. Socially, in terms of prestige, influence, power, we're at the bottom. No, they didn't get anything except heaven for what they said. The fourth consideration. Um, do their stories contradict? Do the witnesses contradict one another? I talked about this some last night. I'm not going to do it again. Except to ask you to turn quickly to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. You know the apostles are mentioned twice there in that list in 1 Corinthians 15. And you know what John tells us in 1 John chapter 1 when they were examining Jesus? John says we use the scientific approach to verifying that Jesus was alive. John, 1 John 1 verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, for the life was manifested, we have seen, bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to, uh, to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now the scientific method is observation, experimentation, publication. You look at something. You formulate a hypothesis. You experiment with your hypothesis. You test it. You see if others can replicate the results of your experiments. And if everybody's getting the same result, and every time you try it, you get the same result, then you write it up and you tell people, here's what I've found. John says, I'm writing to you about what we saw, who we heard, who we handled. They verified the resurrection of Christ as best they could through the empirical process. The resurrection, as far as John's concerned, has been established scientifically. And their testimony does not contradict. No variation at all on the core facts. And then number five. <coughs> Is there a hostile witness? Is there corroborating testimony? There's the best hostile witness. Saul of Tarsus. He was public enemy number one. Breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples. He was a fanatic when it came to persecuting Christians. <clears throat> he was on the road to Damascus at high noon. Only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the Syrian sun at high noon. Saul's out there on the road, getting to Damascus, finding Christians to put them in jail. And something happened on that road that turned him into a believer. Abba Eben, who is dead now, was for many years a noted Jewish historian, Jewish 
defense minister, well-respected man in Israel just a decade or two ago. He wrote a history of the Jews in the first century. In this history, he said there were two things that happened in the first century that rocked Judaism to its core. The destruction of the temple and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. That was like the Pope becoming a member of the Oak Mountain Church of Christ. That's how earth-shattering that was. And this man who hated everything about Christianity did everything he could to wipe it out. Saul was a Gestapo agent. He was a Jewish Gestapo agent grabbing innocent men and women, dragging them out of their homes, torturing them until they blasphemed, killing them. He became the chief spokesman to the Gentiles that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, Simon Greenleaf wrote another book called The Testimony of the Evangelist in which he subjected the testimony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to the canons of judicial examination. He said by every rule of jurisprudence, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John stand at the very top as witnesses, reliable, credible witnesses. And the only valid, reasonable conclusion that can be drawn from their testimony is that Jesus was resurrected. And so we've got a solid historical basis for what we believe that nobody else has. Of the four great religions in the world, only one of them is based on historical fact. The others are philosophies. Only one has an empty tomb. Only one has a risen Savior who was seen, whose life was verified by reliable witnesses. Well, I want to thank you for listening this morning. We're going to study from Acts chapter 2 here in just a minute about the preaching, the first preaching of the resurrection. And then uh, this evening, I, I've changed this up a little bit. I was supposed to talk about the New Testament books this morning. I've changed that up. Next class, I'm talking about the resurrection from Acts 2. Tonight, I'm talking about really the greatest objection to Christianity. It's never been historical. It's been emotional, philosophical. The problem of the evil, suffering, is how we'll conclude tonight. Thank you for your attention this morning. I think I swallowed them.